Now, I thought I must have drifted onto the onion the other day, but no, it was Condé Nast Traveler, whatever that is. They seem to own a bunch of websites, but it was some sort of official publication. And they ranked Chicago, Chicago, Illinois, as the best city in the United States. The article is not some leftover from yesteryear. They posted it not four months ago, October. They left out the fact that the city saw more than 800 murders last year alone. About 10 people are shot every day in the city of Chicago. The Chicago Tribune called the violence in 2021 unrelenting, so bad that in December, a cry went out from Mary, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's office imploring the federal government to step in and help stem the tide to bring some justice to the beleaguered Windy City. In Genesis 18, the Lord God sets out from heaven to go and investigate the cries of injustice that rise from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He brings two angels with him, but before executing judgment, the Lord pays a surprise visit to Abraham, sharing a meal with him and two talks, interesting talks, somewhat tense talks, but interesting to be sure. So we begin in verse one, the Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting in the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He, Abraham, looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought so that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so you can strengthen yourselves. This is why you've passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. We get to see Abraham serve the Lord in this passage in a very passionate, very personal, very effective way. Uh, truly, it's an inspiration for us as uh, those who came after Abraham to watch this 99-year-old man hustling around in the, in the heat there, making sure his guests were attended to and making sure they felt the welcome that he wanted them to feel. We don't know when Abraham realized that he was dining with the Lord, Maybe he knew right away, maybe it was later on, but right from the outset, Abraham shows us how to serve God in a wonderful, proper way. From the start, we see that he was, most important of all, ready to serve. As one commentator points out, Abraham wasn't inconvenienced by the Lord's arrival. He wasn't put out that suddenly some guys had showed up that he needed to attend to. No, his heart was ready to serve when the moment came. And that was his standby mode. A lot of our electronic devices have standby mode where it's never really all the way off. And, you know, sometimes people complain about that because your television, your computer, your devices are still drawing power. But it's a great thing for us to think about as Christians that our standby mode, we are never actually turned off from serving the Lord, from being a representative for the Lord, for, for receiving from the Lord. We have a standby mode. And Abraham's standby mode was, I'm ready to serve the Lord. Now, the moment when it came was a very ordinary one. There was nothing unusual going on, nothing particularly spiritual, nothing particularly important. In fact, quite the opposite. It was just a plain, hot afternoon on an unremarkable day. 
But God, of course, can make any unremarkable day remarkable with his presence. It's when the Lord shows up to do a work in and through your life that makes your life wonderful and makes your life remarkable, not something that's going on in the trappings of our circumstances around us. Abraham says there in verse 3, please do not go on past your servant. This baseline readiness kept Abraham from missing a precious opportunity to serve the Lord and to grow in his own faith and receive new revelation from God. Paul instructs us how to live out our Christian lives in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he says this, I'm not trying to put a leash on you. I'm trying to help you serve the Lord without distraction. What a great message from uh, the apostle and, and that, that apostle who founded so many churches and uh, the apostle through whom God brought the gospel to Europe, which leads directly to us being here tonight. And so serving the Lord without distraction, uh, living a Christian life is not meant to be beset with boundaries in a bad way or, or tied down uh, with all sorts of strange regulations that we can't bear up under. No, we're, we're made free in Christ. Yes, Christ gives us boundaries, of course, but he, he frees us to follow him and to be ready to be his uh, agents and to be uh, receiving gifts from him and all of these different things that he wants to do. And so looking at Abraham and knowing what we read in the New Testament, we find that, that it's important that we condition our hearts to be ready to serve, ready to recognize an opening or an opportunity to worship God or to minister to a person or to bring some help or some support, bring encouragement, to bring instruction, to share the gospel. There's so many different ways that we can serve God, whether that's ministering to the Lord through worship and things like that, or ministering to others as an agent for the Lord, but conditioning our hearts to be ready for that opening and that, those opportunities. And that's not always our natural default as people, but we find that the Lord wants it to become our supernatural default as we walk with him. Abraham made the Lord his honored guest that day. Uh, he didn't see the Lord as a burden or in his inconvenience, as I said. He made the Lord his honored guest. And you know, the Lord loves that. It's an amazing thing to consider that in that moment, this, this, this meal, this interaction really happened. And in that moment, the God of heaven and earth, creator of all things, he would rather be hanging out in the front yard of some dusty old tent in 2000 BC than stay in the courts of heaven. Because God can do whatever he wants, right? And what did he want to do? He wanted to come down and spend time with Abraham, an extended period of time. Why? Because his friend was there. Listen, God didn't need the rest or the nourishment that Abraham was offering. If anything, it was putting him off of his other stated goal of going down to evaluate Sodom and Gomorrah. But the Lord wanted so much to just spend time with his friend. And this is the heart that God has towards you as well. The Lord calls us his friends. And he wants to spend time with you. The last book of the Bible, the Revelation, talks about how the Lord wants to, he knocks on the doors of your heart and he wants to come in and sup with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to have a true living personal relationship 
with you. Verse six says, so Abraham hurried into the tent and he said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and he set them before the men and he served them as they ate under the tree. Abraham's getting his cardio in that day. He's getting all his steps. He's jogging back and forth, doing all of this stuff. And as we watch him serve the Lord, we see he does so with urgency, with earnestness, with generosity. He doesn't use the regular barley. No, he uses the fine flour and a whole lot of it. Uh, commentators and people who know things say that it was about 20 quarts of flour is what's being talked about. That's a lot of bread. He had a calf prepared. That was a rare and precious thing to do uh, when it comes to feasting and when it comes to preparing this kind of food. He pulled in these other ingredients and they made this wonderful shepherd's feast. It took time. It took effort. It was a costly thing that he did. But Abraham was excited to offer this to the Lord and the two angels with him. Abraham doesn't spend time complaining that they didn't have dates on hand or, or that they didn't have the finest of wine ready to serve. He gave what he had, but he did so without holding back. And there's an important facet of his heart that we get a glimpse of, and it's pointed out by a lot of Bible commentators and teachers. It's that he served them personally. Now, it makes sense to us, of course, but remember, this was a powerful, wealthy sheik there in the area, there in the land of Canaan. He had hundreds of servants who attended him and dealt with everything that needed to be dealt with in his household. And yet there he is making yogurt himself from the curds. He, the master of the house, served them. It was his honor, it was his duty to present himself before the Lord as a servant. He didn't just pawn it off and say, I'm going to let somebody else take care of this. I'm too important to, to lower myself to serve these people, whether he knew it was the Lord or not. He could have pawned this off to show how important he was, to show how wealthy he was, to show what a great leader he was and all the you know, largesse that he had, but he took just an excitement and, and a delight in serving himself and saying, I'm going to put my own hands to the work. While you're busy making this calf and while you're busy making bread, I'm going to go work on the yogurt and I'm going to go and set everything up. And then he served as, as the footman at the, at the feast there. He stood while they ate. What a wonderful hearted servant we see here. As we serve the Lord, it's never meant to be a chore or an obligation. It's not meant to be something that we do begrudgingly or tight-fistedly. If that's how we feel when it's time to worship the Lord or pray to the Lord or serve the Lord or obey the Lord or give something to the Lord, if we're feeling like that is just a huge burden and we're begrudgingly doing it and we feel like it's this obligation that we don't want to have anything to do with, if that's what we're feeling in our hearts then we really need to stop and get a little heart work done. We need to go see our spiritual cardiologist and say, hey, something is not pumping correctly. I got a valve that needs replacing, or I've got some kind of, I've got some kind of issue. Lord, I need you to work on my heart and operate on me and create in me a clean heart. Because we see when a person is in communion with God, this is the kind of attitude that they have, just an excitement and a delight to take up their duty and be honored to serve the Lord their God. 
Now, as someone pointed out, the Lord wanted to be Abraham's guest that day. That's why they came by his tent. You know, they didn't have to come by his tent. They were on a mission to go down to the cities on the plain, but they took it upon themselves to come to Abraham's tent because they wanted to be his guest. The Lord wanted to spend time with this son of his and tell him all the wonderful things he was going to do in his life. And so we are invited as people who believe, like Abraham, to serve the Lord with gladness. And if we find ourselves not serving the Lord with gladness, but with uh, just drudgery, then it's time to book an appointment to see our spiritual uh, cardiologist, to see the great physician, the Lord Jesus, and ask him to do a work in our hearts. Verse 9 says, where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I'll certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. In our culture, the wife is typically the hostess in a situation like this, thank goodness, because uh, the husbands, husbands are just going to like set out corn nuts as the feast, right? And that's it. But in this era, in this culture, the woman would not even eat with the fellows there. It would be improper. But naturally, Sarah is very interested in what's going on, and so she's eavesdropping on the conversation on the other side of the tent flap. Now, these strangers reveal here the fact that they aren't run-of-the-mill travelers. They're not just guys passing through. They know Sarah's name. And more importantly, the Lord explicitly states that he has the power to give life to her barren womb. And I imagine he did so in a nice, loud voice, knowing that Sarah was, in fact, listening in on their table talk. You parents ever do this for your kids? Do you think we should get ice cream later today? Pat her feet. Did you say ice cream? I sure did. Get your shoes. Let's go. And, you know, the Lord, the Lord is, is loving, and he is playful, and he has a sense of humor. And so I imagine he said that nice and loud, knowing that she was listening in. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. I, I don't know. We don't have all of the details, but I imagine she shouted that from inside the tent. <laughs> I didn't laugh. And I go, oh, you are listening. Now, listen, on film, this would be a funny scene, and we chuckle about it because we know the end of the story, and we know everything that's going on, and we know the goodness and grace of God. And this would be funny on film. But you know what it wouldn't have been funny to? Abraham and Sarah. Uh, it, this would not have been an enjoyable moment at all. One source explains that linguistically, the Lord said something like, why on earth did Sarah laugh? Uh, he says it in a, in, a, in a sense of amazement, as if the angel of the Lord here is shocked that she would laugh at his prophecy. She's been caught scoffing by the Lord. Not a good look, as people say today. Have you ever been at a dinner where someone says something they really shouldn't have and the party is effectively over? And it's like, well, you know, we got to get up early, so we're going to pack it in here. Politicians will be on the campaign trail, and they might say one wrong phrase, and that's the end of their prospects. J. 
Jeb Bush, please clap. Remember that, or, you know, that man, that, I watched that a couple times today, just in preparation for this, just watching poor Jeb Bush say, please clap at that one campaign stop. And that was the end. That was it. He said the wrong thing and his campaign was over. <laughs> but listen, we can sense the tension in this situation. We see Sarah's fear. She's so afraid it pushes her deeper into the hole. She lies outright to the Lord. And then the Lord has to correct her a second time. But notice, in this interaction, the Lord isn't counting strikes against Sarah and Abraham. You know, sometimes I think, particularly with some of these great heroes of the faith, particularly in the Old Testament, I think perhaps we talk too much in these stories about the tests of their faith in the sense that, well, they came and they had a test and were they going to pass or were they not going to pass? You know, the Lord isn't deciding here whether he was going to disqualify them or not. This was a teachable moment. And we see that the Lord instructs them and he corrects them. When you were in school, test times were not teaching times. That was a suspension of teaching, right? It was like, hey, the teaching part is over. Close your book, get out a pencil. We're going to measure you now. And what we're measuring, in a sense, is whether you are ready to move forward or not. That's how I think of testing when I think of, you know, tests that I've faced uh, in school and things like that. But in the biblical sense, the testing of our faith isn't to decide whether you pass or fail, whether you're qualified or disqualified. The testing of our faith is to refine us, to bring forth the gold of God's glory in your life, to produce heavenly attributes like endurance and maturity. And so, I don't know, for me, it's been helpful to not always think, well, Abraham, passed this test and failed this test and failed this test, but passed this test. What the Lord was doing was refining his faith. He wasn't doing these pop quizzes to see if he could catch Abraham and Sarah in weakness of faith. That's not what the Lord does. Jesus doesn't say here, Sarah, you're close to striking out. That's two, one more, and who knows what's going to happen. Rather, he shows her that she is thinking wrong. He uses her misstep as a teachable moment. Psalm 37 speaks a great word of encouragement to us as people who love the Lord and want to follow him, but of course we are very imperfect. And in that Psalm, we are promised that the Lord watches over us all our days. And whether they're good days or bad days, the Lord is watching over us. And in that psalm, it says, the Lord is watching over you all of your days and you will not be disgraced. It says, though a believer falls, he will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports him with his hand. Not that if you claw hard enough, you'll get to the mountain of faith and finally God will say, all right, you've passed. The Lord says, no, I support you with the strength of my hand. I'm not going to let you be disgraced. You're my people, and I started the work in you, and I'm going to be the faithful one to complete it. That's the heart of our God. And so here, God supports Sarah's sagging faith by reminding her of the reality that nothing, nothing, nothing is impossible for God. 
And it's a reminder to us too, of course, our faith should not be rooted in our feelings or in our circumstances or what we think is possible or in conventional wisdom or in religious tradition. No, our faith is built upon the person of Jesus Christ and nothing is impossible for him. No matter what you're facing, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter how the mountains shake and crumble, nothing is impossible for the Lord our God. Verse 16 says, the men got up from there and looked out over Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. And the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. And then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if they have done, if what they have done justifies the cry that comes up to me. If not, I'll find out. God may not be visible to us, but he loves to reveal himself. We, we see his love for revelation in this scene. He wants to show believers who he is and what he does and what he's doing. Remember, God considers Abraham his friend the book of James says so. You're his friend too, according to Jesus himself in John chapter 15. And the Lord makes things known to his friends. He loves to reveal. He's not trying to hide away from you. He's trying to reveal himself to you. Abraham did not have a Bible to read, not even an Old Testament. He had precious few examples to analyze or study. It probably would have been a jarring thing had the Lord not had this conversation with him to have God promise you a son on one day and the next day maybe kill your nephew's family. You might think, wait, what's going on here? Oh, what's up with this God? And so the Lord wants Abraham to understand more of who he is, that he is a God of power and a God of might and a God of justice and a God of wrath, but also a God of mercy and long-suffering. And, and the Lord is all of these things, and it is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Abraham was not so lucky to have those things. Notice also, despite the awkwardness there at the door of the tent after the meal with the scoffing and the lying and all that, God isn't leaving early. He doesn't leave in a huff. He doesn't take his ball and go home. He's still full of grace towards this imperfect family. I'm sure Abraham and Sarah were immensely embarrassed by what had just happened. But what do we see the Lord do? The Lord immediately moves on. He doesn't dwell on that awkwardness or that mistake that Sarah made. He immediately moves on. And he's thinking about Abraham's future. Friends, God is thinking thoughts about you. It seems impossible, it seems unfathomable, but the Bible says so, that God is thinking thoughts about each one of you here tonight. They are a great and precious sum, the Bible says. When's the last time that you thought about your wife's cousin? Not that cousin, the other one. When's the last time? You don't think about a lot of those people because our brains are very small and unable to think about a whole lot of things at once. And so in normal circumstances, these distantly connected folks, even ones we're related to, they're just not all that important to us, right? But God is thinking about you in his infinite, all-knowing omnipotence. He's thinking about each of you. 
and your future and your family. He's thinking about his excitement to accomplish his good work in your life. He's thinking about that moment of reunion where he's going to stand face to face with you in eternity. He's filling up his thoughts with thoughts about you. There's a key point in verse 19 that we need to take to heart. Abraham will keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right. This is how the Lord will fulfill what he has promised. As we've seen before, and as we'll see again, a living faith is defined by obedience. And through obedience, the Lord is able to shape us and use us in the best way possible. It's through obedience that he is able to bring fruit in our lives and conform us into his image and and do what he wants to do in us. Through obedience, we're able to learn what the will of God is and enjoy the benefits of the blessed life that we read about in the Beatitudes and in Psalm chapter one. The polar opposite of faithful obedience was Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities on the plain. We know there was a testimony about the one true God in their region. There was Lot. There's a weak testimony, but he was a righteous man whose righteous soul was vexed by that which he saw around him. Peter says so, otherwise we wouldn't believe it. (laughs) But there was Lot. There was Abraham and Melchizedek. These people in Sodom particularly had personally experienced the power and the mercy of God when he sent Abraham to save them from Chedorlaomer a few chapters ago. And yet, in spite of all that testimony, in spite of all they have seen, they did not turn toward the Lord. They did not turn from their sin. In fact, they delved deeper into their rebellion and their debauchery and their wickedness. What was this sin which was so serious to the Lord? Well, the Bible explains that they had several fatal spiritual issues, sort of a spiritual flu-rona, if I do say so myself. (laughs) First, and, and, and most famously, these cities were rotten with sexual immorality. In the next passage, we'll see that the entire male population of the city of Sodom were roving the streets looking for men to gang rape. Pretty bad. (laughs) <laughs> That's as pretty bad, as bad as humans get, I'd say. Isaiah tells us that they flaunted their sin, that they took pride in it. But in addition, in addition to their sexual sin and their blasphemous pride, we're told that these cities crushed the poor and the needy in the book of Ezekiel. They had plenty of supplies and security to spread around, but instead of helping, they spent their time on detestable acts of perversion and oppressing the weak in their midst. That was the diagnosis. Their sin rose like a cry up to heaven again and again. We recall earlier in this book, Abel's blood cried out from the ground, God said. Injustice and oppression and corruption ring out as beacons which invite God's wrath and his vengeance on the perpetrators. And God will visit wrath upon the unrighteous and godlessness of this world. His wrath is the proper response to the sin of mankind. We have worked sin, each and every one of us, every single human being that has ever been born. We have worked sin and the wages for that work is death. But praise God that the one who believes in the son has eternal life. He made a way that we could be removed from the wrath that we deserve and instead be given life and not death. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. 
If you are not a believer, if you've never been born again, the Bible says you must be born again. And if you're not, you are under God's wrath. And his judgment for your sin is coming for you as sure as it came for Sodom and Gomorrah. You will not escape it in the end unless you turn and surrender to Jesus Christ who says, I will be your substitute. I will pay the price that you owe so that your sins could be cleansed, so that you can be saved, so that you can be rescued from that destruction and instead brought into the kingdom of light. Verse 22 says, the men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Justice must include judgment, right? It's not a pleasant thing to think about, but it is required. If God does not judge sin, he cannot be God because he would not be just and he would not be good. But Abraham knows that Lot has tragically put his roots down in Sodom. And we can hear the desperation in his voice. He loves Lot. He loves Lot like a son, despite all of the things that Lot has done. Now, of course, God would not destroy the righteous with the wicked, but that does not mean that bad things never happen to God's people. In fact, this whole scene makes a, a decent case for rejecting the idea of what is called meticulous determinism. Meticulous determinism, in a, in a nutshell, is the idea that every single occurrence is specifically caused and by God, even natural disasters, Every tumor that grows was God put that tumor in you. Everything that happens is because God took pleasure to do that to human beings, whether they be good or bad from our perspective. That's the idea espoused in what we call meticulous providence or meticulous determinism. But, you know, texts like this one show that that's not the way that God operates. Uh, one popular reformed pastor back in 2012 once called the deadly Midwest tornadoes that killed a bunch of people. He said, that's the fingers of God dragging across the Midwest of the United States. What a disgusting thing to say about a God of love and grace. God specifically shows here that he does not judge the righteous with the wicked. Even when the righteous are pretty not righteous when they're, when they're a lot. He's, we're going to get there, but he's gonna, the angels are going to say to Lot, we can't destroy the city until you're out. You don't even want to leave the city, but we can't destroy it until you're gone. And so, of course, God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And yet we see terrible things happen to God's people, to righteous people. Sometimes tornadoes kill Christians. So what's the deal? And so we see that Natural disasters are a result of sin and its effect on creation. It's not some demonstration of God's cruel power. And so we're talking about judgment here, and God is just. Ju justice demands that the guilty be punished and the righteous go free. And God has made believers righteous when they turn to him and are saved by grace through faith, and therefore we go free. Dr. J. Vernon McGee notes that this is also a quiet hint at a pre-tribulation rapture. That period of fierce judgment will not begin until God's church is removed, as Lot was removed before Sodom was destroyed. 
Verse 26, the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham answered, since I ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I I find 45 there. And he spoke to him again, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it on account of 40. And then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further, suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, since I ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. And he replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. And then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham was interested in rescuing the people of Sodom for the sake of his nephew Lot and his family. Abraham had rescued Sodom once before, but that was when they were facing a very different kind of reckoning. Abraham, of course, wasn't about to strap on a sword and fight against his Lord and stand in his way and say, no, you can't go go fight, you can't go and judge the people of Sodom, but he wanted to do something, so what could he do? Well, he could plead for them. He could act as sort of a public defender almost. Now, Abraham was not convincing God to be merciful. Don't think that for a minute. No, this was in fact another opportunity that Abraham was able to step into provided by God. Remember, the Lord had said, through Abraham, all the nations are going to be blessed. And God gives Abraham a chance to serve in that capacity right here, right now. He interceded and appealed for these people. He's being a salty believer, trying to be a preserving influence on a lost and dying world. This would have been a somewhat bittersweet moment, I'd say, for our Lord. On the one hand, he gets to see the incredible heavenly grace and compassion and glorious operation in Abraham's life. Imagine the smile that must have crept across the Lord's face as Abraham is just trying to pour out all of this grace and all of this mercy and and say, can't we save these people? And what a great, sweet moment that must have been. And then the Lord also knew, yeah, except there aren't 10 righteous people in that city and it's gonna burn. It's gonna burn tomorrow. And so remember, the Lord is a person and he has emotion. Uh, That's why we have emotion because we are made in his image. I've heard it said that Abraham was whittling down the number to get to the size of Lot's family, but there's really no indication that Lot had any more than just his wife and two daughters. His two daughters, it seems, had some fiancés, but I don't know exactly where that idea came from, but you'll probably come across it as you study this passage. There's something very important to acknowledge here. The very best thing that we can do for our city or for our nation is not to vote for a certain candidate. It's not to support certain NGOs. It's not even to buy local. The best thing that you can do for the city of Hanford, for the county of Kings, for the state of California, for the United States of America is be righteous. That is the best thing that any of us can do. Now, some of those other things are good things. I'm not saying not to vote. I'm not saying not to support organizations or anything like that. Some of those things are good things. But the best thing that we can do is be righteous because righteousness exalts a nation. The fruit of righteousness is peace. And if we're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, we will be satisfied. These are promises from the word of God. What a difference a little righteousness would have made for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? 
if eight other people, seven other people would have just lived a righteous life, would have just believed the God who had saved them from Chedorlaomer, they all would have been spared. A little righteousness goes a long way, and so we can bring that righteousness to our city and to our state and to our nation. And so we've seen how wonderful it is to be ready to serve God. We've seen the way we can intercede with compassion, even for undeserving people. We've seen how important justice and mercy are to the Lord. But as we close, let's just look again at the graciousness of God, how gracious this God really is. Because from one vantage point, if we read this from a certain perspective, here's what we see. We see God coming down to spend some time with people, and those people are eavesdropping on him, lying to him, scoffing at his word, disbelieving his promises, maybe even trying to manipulate him and accuse him of wrongdoing. And what's his response? Grace. Just loving, correcting, compassionate grace. He is kind and generous. He is just and true. And he brings his people along even when we're frankly dead weight right? I mean, Sarah says, man, we're as good as dead. And they were kind of acting like it too. I don't believe he's going to do anything. I'm scoffing. I'm lying. And Abraham's like, hey, you're going to do the wrong thing by judging Sodom and Gomorrah. And, And yet the Lord brings his people along. This astonishing grace is yours and mine to enjoy and to exercise as we walk with God and live to serve him. So let's prepare for this grace, watch for it, and jump at the chance to operate in it.